The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love. Like taking those perfect new year, new you portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE to learn more or visit a store today. Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Good morning. Welcome to episode 62. I hope everybody had a uh, very nice and relaxing 4th of July. You know, I, I can't figure out what happened in certain towns, like my town, for example. They've done away with 4th of July fireworks, and so you've got to go to other towns in order to see them. And the reason for it is financially based, but then later on in the year, they have a town-wide day, like a day celebrating the town, and they'll do fireworks then. So it's not really a budgetary thing. It's like they shift it to this celebration about the town. But quite honestly, I'd rather celebrate uh, celebrate the 4th of July on the 4th of July. So um, there were fireworks on the 4th, the 5th, the 6th. It was a very patriotic weekend. But I still would like to see my town and other towns go back to fireworks on the 4th. But I hope everybody had a good weekend. Um, today, we are going to start off our week uh, in review slash Law Basics um, programming. So on Mondays at 10 o'clock, we're going to be doing a 30-minute show every Monday that's primarily going to focus on Law Basics. We're going to talk about particular legal matters or terms or, or instances that, that you're going to be able to learn from. Uh, today, we're going to be doing a combo with our week in review, which we did not broadcast on Saturday simply because of the 4th of July festivities and because my um, sister-in-law was over and we were having a barbecue. And, and so, you know, I figured if I was having a barbecue, everybody else was too. So let's get right to uh, the news from last week. And obviously the biggest legal news last week seemed to be the Hobby Lobby case where they prevailed in the challenge to the contraception mandate. Now, you know, it's all over the news, but, but from a legal standpoint, you have to understand that this is a very narrow decision. This is not going to open up the floodgates and uh, allow for companies to refuse to pay for contraception, for the insurance related to contraception. I think that a lot of people are making a very big deal out of it and they're not understanding the decision itself. And if you read the decision, 
it is limited to closely held companies. And there's a, there's a definition that the IRS issues for closely held companies, but these are very small companies where, um, you know, it, it's not a hundred percent, um, owned stock. Um, it simply is, is really 50%. Um, well, the internal revenue, let me, let me give you the definition. They define it, a closely held corporation as one that has more than 50% of the value in its outstanding stock, stock owned directly or indirectly by five or fewer individuals at a time. So we're talking about a very small company. And the reason that this decision was even reached is because of the cost that would um, attack, you know, there's no other way to say it, the cost that, that, that Hobby Lobby would, would be attacked by or the cost that they would incur. And it would cost them around $475 million annually to be able to pay for this insurance for contraception. So the decision is really at its heart based on finances and the ability of Hobby Lobby to stay in business if they were forced to pay for this insurance. So the decision, while it certainly is interesting and it raised a lot of eyebrows last week, it's limited in scope and it needs to be understood that way. You're not going to be um, you know, going to, to Walmart and realizing that as an employee of Walmart, they're, they're going to rely on this Hobby Lobby decision to say we don't have to pay for contraception for you. Um, this is, again, closely held companies only. All right, also interesting last week, is there's a new trend in prenuptial agreements, and that trend is that there are social media restraints being worked into prenups. So, all right, obviously everybody knows what a prenup is, right? It's an agreement between husband and wife or um, same-sex couples. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't discriminate. It's an agreement that you reach before you get married, and it supposedly aids in reducing divorce uh, proceedings in the event that your marriage doesn't work out the way that you had anticipated because everything's been predetermined. So while you're in that bliss phase, while you still like the person that you're going to be marrying, you sit down, you're level-headed, and you agree, this is yours, this is mine. That's, that's the idea of a prenup. And there are restraints that can be worked into a prenup, such as this money that I'm coming into the marriage with is mine, you're not entitled to it, and, um, you know, it's, it's a restraint against you essentially being able to collect that money or claim that money later. What a lot of prenups are, 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 or what we see with a lot of prenups now, especially between younger people, they want to be able to control the social media that discusses them or their personal life. So, some of these agreements, while they're not common, but they will be, and that's why I think it's important that we talk about it, and that's why I found this story interesting last week. Um, this is going to be something that you're going to see more and more frequently. Restraints against a spouse or ex-spouse uh, posting comments about you, your family, your children on any social media pages. And it's, you know, you, you'd ask, well, how do you enforce that? It's an agreement. It's a contract. So if that contract says you are not permitted to post any stories about me if we get divorced in social media, if the person does it, 
then there's always going to be repercussions because you're able to sue them. You can get injunctive relief. You might be able to, depending on your contract, might be able to get um, damages. So there, there is teeth to the prenup, and there's, there's teeth to this idea of social media restraints. But this is an interesting new area. This is something we haven't seen yet, you know, before. But a lot of young people, they want to be able to control what's being said. And I'll tell you, interestingly, we have a number of cases that involve people who have been divorced and their ex-spouse is using social media as a sword against them to strike out, to lash out against them, and to uh, humiliate them via social media. And while there's legal action that's being taken to prevent that sort of activity, um, the damages are not as clear or as, I, I dare to use the word uh, easy, but they're not as easy as if you had a contract that you violated. So, you know, just um, watch, watch for this. And if you are going to be working on a prenup with a lawyer, give some thought to this idea of having some social media restraints in the agreement. It's interesting. And make sure that you, you select the right lawyer because I don't think every lawyer is going to understand social media and its, its impact. And if you go into, you know, let's say somebody that's uh, up there in years that's not really familiar with, with tech, uh, and you say, hey, I want a social media restraint in my prenup, I don't think they're going to know what you're talking about. And I don't think that they're going to know how to work that in in a way that that is enforceable. So uh, it's certainly something that's interesting, certainly something that you might want to look into, but make sure you get the right attorney to do that. All right, also, last week, a law firm sues another law firm over stolen content from their website. This is really, I think, interesting in today's culture because it is so easy for even amateur web developers and web builders to go and lift the HTML code from a website and copy the code into theirs and then tweak it so that you know, you're taking out somebody's name and replacing it with yours. Uh, websites, and I'm, I'm no website expert, um, but I have dabbled. I, I do do some work with websites. Um, but the basic language, the programming language, HTML, is the back end. It's, it's the behind the scenes, if you will, look at programming the site. That's where all the code is. And the code generates the images and text on the finished site. But code is a behind the scenes thing. But it's easy to find the code. If you're not a programmer, if you don't understand HTML, you can go in, you can cut and paste the code from an existing site with some tweaking. You can drop it into yours, and you're going to be able to get a desired look. It's going to be copied, essentially, from the other person's site. And this happens all the time. The same way that people steal images, and, and, and you know, you'll find a website with a picture, and then you'll find another website with the same picture, and it's not stock photo. They're stolen pictures. This stuff happens all the time. Uh, but this is a really interesting story because this one particular law firm in New Jersey found that the competitor had a site that looked very similar, okay? But that's not enough. 
But what happened was that the Google rankings for that firm dropped. This guy was always on the first and second pages of Google. And after this similar website was brought up by another firm, his Google rankings dropped so significantly that now he wasn't on the first four pages of Google. And everybody knows that prime real estate on Google is the first page. So there's an effort, there's a strategy that you have to employ in order to get on the first page of Google, and it's something that is built up over time, and it's not easy. People pay thousands and thousands of dollars a month for SEO, you know, search engine optimization, in order to get that prime real estate. So this lawyer gets it, he's on there, and then somebody goes in and lifts his code, takes the HTML out, drops it into their site. Now what that does is all of the keywords that were in the code, all of the metadata, everything that Google had been crawling and searching is now essentially been hijacked and brought over to this other firm. And he was able to go in and the same way it's, it's easy to copy the code, it's, it's easy to go in and view the code behind the site. And when he had his programmer look at the code on his site and this competitor now, who has knocked him off the Google rankings, they found the code to be nearly identical. In fact, the code actually had this lawyer's name still embedded in it. Now, the argument on the other side was, no, this was, yes, we did lift the code, right, but this didn't impact your Google rankings because what we took from your site was a list of courts and other uh, information. You know, sometimes you'll see the resources page on a website. That's what the, um, the defendant law firm says they took and that that's not going to impact your Google rankings, but uh, it, it does. And this is a, a really, I think, interesting case because it should teach people you've got to be very careful with what you're doing. You cannot go and steal content because in this day and age, it is not the dawn of the Internet age where it was the Wild West and you could do or get away with anything because only people with superior knowledge were able to figure out what you were doing. It's not like that anymore. The average Joe who understands the basic of a, a, a use of a browser can go in and find the code. So that's an interesting one. Um, also interesting, this is out of New Jersey. Last week there was a ruling that said that the New Jersey law against discrimination, and this is going to carry through to most other states as well, but the law against discrimination, which protects one's marital status, right? It protects you from discrimination on the basis of your marital status. So you can't be discriminated against because you're married or not married. Well, this court in New Jersey has ruled that it extends, and this is the appellate division that we're talking about, that it extends to people who are divorced or divorcing. Marital status incorporates divorced or divorcing individuals. So your employer cannot force you to stay married. And now you're thinking, well, who, who in the right mind would do this? What are you even talking about? Well, we had a, a, a client not too long ago come in and say that his employer was refusing to continue his health benefits if he got divorced. 
and it was a municipal entity, right? And they knew his wife. And I think that that's where this stemmed from. Because small-town politics is small-town politics everywhere. You know, don't be surprised that the mayor in your town who does favors for, uh, you know, his buddy from high school is unique to your town. It's an American problem. It's human nature. So this guy and his, his wife, who he was divorcing, the wife had a strong relationship with some of the police officers in town, uh, the mayor, and they essentially threatened this guy, if you divorce her, we're going to cut off your medical benefits, and we're going to do so in a way that will protect us. So in other words, they're going to lie. They're going to say that your quality of work suffered, that you were no good, and then that's you know, very difficult to prove when you've got an entire government, you know, municipal government behind you, where you're going to have the mayor and the police chief and everybody else saying, oh, yeah, you know, he was a dispatcher, but he was never there. And calls weren't being answered and people were uh, upset and people were not getting medical attention because this dispatcher didn't do a good job. Very difficult to prove against um, those lies or to defend against those lies. So it can happen is my point with this story. Right? It can happen that someone who is divorced or divorcing can be the victim of discrimination. And with this New Jersey Appellate Division ruling, the courts say that now, you know, well, not now because it always existed, but for clarification's sake, marital status incorporates divorced or divorcing individuals. And finally, um, Bethany Frankel, everyone should know her. She's got a television show. She was... I believe one of the original cast members on The Real Housewives of New York. Then she had a spinoff show. She's been in the tabloids lately with her divorce from husband Jason Hoppy, I think his name is. Well, she's the creator of Skinny Girl Drinks, and she made millions and millions by uh, uh, selling her company to Jim Beam. And this was, was news a few years ago. So Skinny Girl Drinks are very popular. They're all over TV. Uh, she's not even really a spokesperson in the commercials. But the idea is that they are low-calorie alcoholic beverages and that they're all natural. They're healthy. And um, a class action had been filed against Skinny Girl because there were chemicals, and I believe sodium benzonate was the primary chemical that was found in the Skinny Girl drinks. And it, it was essentially a false advertising case. And this case has been pending, and they've been seeking class action status. Um, and by the way, if you want to learn more about class actions and how they work, because there's, they're very complicated, and I think people get so confused with what a class action is, go to our YouTube channel and search up our Law Basics. Type in class action, and you'll get some videos that explain what a class action is, how it works, what are the elements or requirements uh, in order to have a class action. And I think it will help you as consumers understand a bit more about the limitations of class actions because I think at every single Thanksgiving in America, there is somebody that says, oh, you know, just file a class action or they should file a class action. I hear it like every Thanksgiving. You know, from somebody different, some aunt or uncle or, or brother-in-law or somebody who says that should be a class action. 
And, you know, as a, a lawyer, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, no, it shouldn't be. But go to the videos, check it out, and it'll explain a lot. But in going back to Bethany Frankel, so there are four prerequisites under the New Jersey laws, and this was a federal court case, um, ultimately decided um, by the, uh, the higher court. Um, but the four prerequisites are numerosity, commonality, typicality, and adequacy of counsel. And then there's one more, and that is that the class issues predominate over issues affecting individual members. Okay, so essentially it's ascertainability of the class. Is the class action the best mechanism for resolving the dispute? So in this case, class certification was denied. Um, the U.S. District Court in New Jersey said that while those four elements that we talked about a second ago were met, a class action is not the best suited means of dealing with the individual claims. And again, I'm not going to get into class action discussion today, but um, if you want more information, go to the videos on our YouTube channel. But for now, Jim Beam and uh, Bethany Frankel are um, free from the potential damaging effects of a class action, but not free from the individual claims should people want to make them. Because the fact of the matter is that while I don't have the, the data in front of me, while I haven't tested the skinny girl drinks, if you look at what is being said in this class action, there's sodium benzoate in the beverage. And while it's according to Frankel's team, um, such a small amount, and it's, it's a permitted preservative under the FDA guidelines, that's not what an all-natural organic beverage is. And that's why places like Whole Foods carrying the product. So no class action, individual claims are a go, and still the fact of the matter is, that there's some false advertising, in my opinion, existing or going on. All right, so that's it for last week's uh, Week in Review, hot topics, legal issues that I thought were important last week. Now, the remainder of today, I want to talk about default judgments. I want to talk about what it is and how you can get out of it if you have one that is filed against you. So um, let's start with a default judgment. What is it? Well, before you can understand what it is, you've got to understand how one would be developed, how it would uh, be put in place. And it all stems from the initiation of a lawsuit, right? A summons and complaint, because that's how a lawsuit is initiated, filed against you. And in every jurisdiction, you have a set number of days to answer a complaint. Now, answering a complaint means writing to the court and the other side and saying, I admit or deny the allegations contained in the complaint. There are other methods of answering a complaint via motions. We're not going to get into that today. That information is also available on our YouTube channel in other videos. Um, if you're interested in learning more about that, go ahead and check that out. But for today's purposes, I want to focus on the default. So 
you have a set period of time to answer the complaint. If you do not answer the complaint within that period of time, the plaintiff, the person suing you, has the ability, has the right to file or request a default judgment. Now, what's a default judgment? Well, that's what you are seeking. That's the judgment is essentially the equivalent of a jury verdict. It's the court saying to the plaintiff, everything that you've asked for in your complaint, everything that you've said is granted. If in your complaint you've asked for $100,000 for personal injury damages, and you don't answer the complaint, and a default is entered against you, that judgment, that default judgment is the equivalent of having a trial because that's the, the end result of a trial, a judgment, a jury verdict, whatever you want to call it. So now you, as the defendant in this lawsuit, you've lost your opportunity to put in a defense. You didn't answer the complaint in time. Now they have a default. and Now they have a judgment against you for the relief requested in the complaint. It could be injunctive relief. It could be monetary relief. It makes no difference. So you've lost your ability to dispute that. And it's not a, a due process violation. You had, pursuant to the court rules, a set period of time within which to answer the complaint. You didn't do so. And therefore, the other side can now get a judgment against you. Now, that's bad, right? A judgment against you is bad because with a little bit of work on the plaintiff's end, docketing the judgment, serving the judgment, that sort of thing, they've got a fully enforceable judgment. The equivalent, again, as if it had been decided at trial or if you had lost the summary judgment motion. And depending upon your jurisdiction, you've got up to 20 years to enforce that judgment. That means that every year, every six months, every month, however frequently the plaintiff wants to pursue you, they can serve you with information subpoenas requesting your bank account information. They can harass you, and I use harass lightly. I'm not talking about violations of the Fair Debt Collection Act, but you know, any request for money, in my eyes, is harassment. Um, but they can go after you for 20 years. You've got this 20-year burden that you're going to carry. And every time you get money, they're going to have the ability to seize it. So a judgment is bad. You want to avoid judgments. And it's really not intelligent to get a default judgment entered against you. Because, you know, you know, the reason you did it, the reason you got it against you is because you thought it was going to go away. And I'm generalizing, but this is what we hear most frequently. Oh, I didn't answer the complaint or get an attorney because I didn't think it was serious. Or I thought it was going to go away. You know, he said this, uh, he was going to sue me, and, and yeah, he was just bluffing, and I thought it was going to go away. I thought it was a bluff. Or I didn't understand it. Or, and this is the worst one, I was scared, right? You cannot stick your head in the sand with something like this because it will come back and bite you. While your head is in the sand, your butt is getting bitten. So what should you do? Honestly, when you get served with a summons and complaint, get a lawyer. 
Let them look at it with you. You don't have to retain them because I'm a big proponent, big believer in, hey, look, there are things that you can do on your own, pro se. Not everything needs a lawyer. If you are being sued for $300 or $500, and that's not a lot of money to you, and it's going to cost you five times as much to hire a lawyer to defend that claim, then it's probably not a good decision to hire one. So in those instances, yeah, absolutely, go ahead and defend yourself. But in general, go first and talk to a lawyer. Find out if it's worth hiring somebody. All right, now, you've got this default judgment entered against you. What do you do? Is it over? Should you give up? Should you try to move out of the country? Preferably to a country where there's no uh, expedition. Not expedition. I've lost the word. I can't remember the word. Well, you're going to have to bear with me. I cannot. Extradition. There we go. Extradition. A country with no extradition treaty. I digress. Well, man, it is Monday and I've got myself all confused now. Anyway, getting back to the uh, default judgment. It's entered against you. What do you do? Well, there is something you can do. And the good news is that the courts throughout the U.S. typically favor resolving litigation on the merits, meaning they want you to be able to present a defense. They want to have the plaintiff present his or her proofs. They don't want to just give a default. It's not favored. They don't like doing it, essentially. It's in the rules, so they have to. But they would rather that the case be decided on the merits, and that's a good thing for you. Because if you file a motion to vacate the default judgment, and your motion contains two things that I'm going to get to in a second, you have a really good shot at vacating the judgment, mean, meaning that the judgment's wiped out. It's over. You can now go in and enter an appearance, answer the complaint, and defend yourself. That's what vacating a judgment means. What are the two things? All right, here it is. Number one, you need to be able to show excusable neglect, a reason why you didn't answer the complaint. You want a reason? And they've got to be real. You can't just say, oh, Peter told me. Um, you didn't get served with a complaint. You were served at, at the wrong address. You don't live there anymore. You had no knowledge of this complaint. They didn't serve you at all. You know, those things happen all the time especially debt collection law firms. They're big because they've got uh, you know, volume, and they just disregard rules. They send out stuff all the time. Um, they don't know whether or not they've been served, or, or, and it just happens. So excusable neglect. Second, meritorious defense. If you have no defense to the claim, you are dead to rights, which is only a handful of cases, because you can always make a defense. You might not win, but you have a defense. You've got to be able to show a meritorious defense. If you have a defense that has any merit to it, whether or, or not you can prove it, not important. Do you have a meritorious defense? So if you do, and you can show both excusable neglect and meritorious defense, there is a high likelihood that your default judgment will be vacated You'll be able to put in an answer and then submit your proofs to defend the claim 
and compel the plaintiff to produce his or hers. That's how you get out of a default judgment. Now, a warning. This isn't something I suggest you do on your own. Again, unless it is cost prohibitive to hire a lawyer. It's important that you vacate a judgment properly because if you don't, and you don't submit the right affidavits or certifications and proofs, you are going to lose and the judgment will still be there. So my advice to you, when you get served with a summons and complaint, take action immediately. That action should be go speak with a lawyer. You don't need to retain that lawyer, but go speak to the lawyer. Then make an informed decision. Take the bull by the horns. Do not stick your head in the sand. It it will come back to bite you big time. Then, if you do have a default entered through no fault of your own, right? They just lied. The plaintiff lied. They said they served you. You never saw this lawsuit before. Now what do you do? You file the motion to vacate the default judgment. And again, seek the help of an attorney unless it is cost prohibitive. And then you're going to have to do it yourself. Now, uh, one final thought before I go. If you are interested in learning more about default judgments, how to vacate a default, check out our YouTube channel. There's a ton of videos on this topic and related topics. And if you're really stuck and you want to discuss whether or not it makes sense to hire an attorney or how to formulate your motion, go ahead and give us a call. The office number is 973-949-3770. I'm also going to give you my direct email. Feel free to email me, plamont at peterlamontesq.com. I'd be happy to answer these questions for you uh, so that you have a better understanding and so that you can understand the law. And that is the purpose of this radio broadcast. That's why we have these shows, because we want people to understand the law, understand your rights and obligations. It makes you a better informed citizen, a better and informed consumer, and so on and so forth. So I'd like to thanks for joining. thank you for joining me this Monday morning uh, after the 4th of July. I hope that you found this helpful and interesting. If you have topics that you'd like to hear me discuss on our Monday Morning Law Basics show, please feel free to email them, leave a comment under um, our Twitter page, Facebook page, under the YouTube page, anywhere that we are connected. Go directly to the website, email me, however you want to do it. Leave a comment. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, as well as subscribing to our YouTube channel, where you can get a ton of additional information. So thanks for joining me. Tune in this Thursday, 10 o'clock for our regular hour-long show. Have a great week until then, and remember that there's power in understanding the law. 